Welcome to the podcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined by two officials from the Conservation Law Foundation, Greg Cunningham and Caitlin Peel Sloan. Both focus on clean energy and climate change, and they're here to talk about the challenges we face as we move away from the use of fossil fuels in producing electricity and heating our homes and buildings. Greg, let's start with you. Two weeks ago, Gordon Van Wheelie, who oversees the New England power grid, was on the podcast talking about the grid's vulnerabilities. Not enough renewables, not enough balancing power, which is needed when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining, and not enough energy at certain times of the year. He concluded that it wasn't going to be easy for the grid to shed its reliance on natural gas anytime soon. You have a different take, I'm, I'm guessing. What is it? First of all, thank you, Bruce, for, for having us on the program. It's great to be here. <clears throat> and we, we do have a different take. I think fundamentally our take vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Gordon Van Welle and ISO New England's has in part to do with what, what is the ISO's role. And while um, Mr. Van Welle was quick to identify many problems as, as he often does, um, and to characterize his job as to draw attention to these system and market problems. From our perspective, his job and ISO's job is to address these issues. And nothing that was raised by Gordon Van Welle is new to ISO New England or to any of us. These are issues that have been um, of concern you know, for literally for decades. Um, certainly since 2008, when both Connecticut and Massachusetts put in place climate laws that mandate change in the region. And you know, the writing was on the wall as of 2008 that a substantial transformation was going to be needed and that the electric sector, ISO New England, and our electric and gas utilities would be a central part of that. And so it's frustrating, needless to say, for us to sit here in 2022 and to hear the litany of problems and concerns repeated over and over again from the entity that is, was designed to be central around fixing them. Um, Gwen Van Welle has a substantial pedestal from which to speak, and many people listen when he does. And there's an unfortunate tendency to to use fear-mongering and you know, the risk of rolling blackouts and all of the bad things that may happen if we don't address these issues, rather than identifying for us how we're gonna solve these problems. That's what we're looking for. And there are any number of, of approaches. You know, I, it, it is, it's really disconcerting to us that um, you know, in each and every one of the pillars that was discussed, and there were four of them, um, by, by Mr. Van Welle, you know, there have been efforts by ISO New England that have essentially failed with respect to each and every one. And let's get at those. Let's talk about those failed programs. Let's talk about how we're going to replace them and how we're going to move from there. We've got to reduce our emissions by 45% by 2030 by law. And that's as a result of laws in five of our six New England states. There's a lot of work to be done. We need ISO New England to get after the task. So 
just to follow up on that a little bit, um, it's it's sort of a broad topic, obviously, but one of the the sort of fundamental problems that exists, and uh, he sort of characterized, which I thought was interesting, I hadn't heard him do this before, he characterized the role of ISO New England, the grid operator, as like an air traffic controller, doesn't really own the power generating plants or have all, all, all consuming power to do whatever it wants, but it has to get all the parties to work together. And he's a big believer in the markets that operate so that it's not all the risk being put on ratepayers, so that it's, it's the market assumes some of the risk for providing the energy we need. And the, the, one of the seemingly fundamental problems that we have is that the states have these set these goals and have basically just put ratepayers on the hook for a number of energy procurements. Offshore wind is a good example. They just, they just went ahead and bought it. And so then, then the problem has always been, and maybe it's resistance to change, but the problem has always been, how do you take these out of market contracts that the states are doing and meld them into a marketplace that was not set up in that, in that fashion? Now, he in the past has often talked about a carbon tax or some sort of measure to sort of provide an, a, a balancing act to, to put them all in the marketplace. Politicians don't like to do that. So it, it just sort of seems like, um, I don't know, you sort of put the blame all on ISO, but it seems like there's a lot of pressure points moving here in different directions. Um, talk about that for a second. Don't, please don't misconstrue my prior remarks. I'm not putting all of the blame on, on, on ISO. There are many players here. The states have their role. Uh, stakeholders and advocates like CLF have our role and ISO and the utilities have their role. Um, what, I'm, what I'm concerned about is the emphasis on the problem rather than on the solution. So to, to get to your question, Yes, there is this concern around states separately and outside of the ISO New England electricity wholesale markets um, purchasing, for example, offshore wind and what effect that has on these markets. But let's be clear why the states are resorting to that. They're resorting to it because the markets that ISO has designed and the system operator that, they that the states have designated, ISO New England, isn't working properly and isn't working sufficiently to generate the new forms of clean energy that we need to meet the requirements of state climate law. So ISO New England doesn't make policy. They're quick to note that and they're absolutely right about it. But they have to react to the set of circumstances that those that they do serve, the New England states and, and the electricity consumers within them, they have to react to that set of circumstances. And the set of circumstances today differs from what it did when those markets were established and the markets have to adjust. ISO New England um, undertook with, with the set of stakeholders uh, with whom it works in its marketplace in 2016, an effort to consider just this question, how do we modify the ISO New England markets to better account for the state climate policies. And a lot of money, resources, human and financial resources went into that process, all kinds of studies and designs for 
potential solutions. And I'll be frank, I was part of the process. Others may differ with me on this, but it sure felt like ISO New England stepped in, put its thumb on the scale, took over the process and put in place an alternative solution that I think we all agree today, it's what's known as CASPER. Uh, what we all agree today has been an absolute failure. And here we are now six years later, and we're still talking about you know, what it is we're gonna do for a solution. Now ISO has a process the, to their credit, they have reinitiated this process and there are some additional proposals on the table. And I'm, and I'm hopeful that ISO will dig into that and, and identify what is the pathway forward that does best ensure that the, the best, uh, most cost-effective, um, most climate beneficial clean energy projects move forward and do so you know, on an expedited basis. But there's a history here of ISO New England obfuscating. And, and that's what I want to avoid in the future. Caitlin, uh, let's turn to you for a, for a minute here and, and address another uh, big energy development this week. Um, Natural, National Grid said it has a plan for reducing emissions associated with heating buildings that doesn't involve ripping out the existing natural gas infrastructure and instead using it to deliver renewable natural gas or green hydrogen. The company says its approach will save money and deliver results more quickly than a full-scale conversion to electric heat. What's your, what's your reaction to their proposal this week? Thanks, Bruce. Um, it's a great question. My reaction to any of our gas utilities who talk about essentially keeping their current business model and swapping in alternative fuels is that that's just categorically not a decarbonization plan. Uh, they don't have the science or evidence or data to back up any claims about emissions reductions from so-called renewable gas. So you, the way your, your tone is that this is sort of a, a, a plan that basically allows them to stay in control of the energy that's coming into our homes and, and make their business viable for years to come. Is that fair to say? There are pathways to decarbonizing buildings that keep a significant role for um, our gas utilities that would keep them solvent, but they don't include swapping in different forms of methane into their leaky system to pipe them into homes with leaky appliances, which sends a huge amount of methane into the atmosphere. It's just not, they can't close those gaps in order to save enough methane to make it any kind of carbon benefit to swap in biomethane for fossil fuel. So uh, going a little big picture here, both of you are sort of raising issues about change and, and what, we're, what we're facing is perhaps big changes afoot. And I, I sense that you feel that the institutions that are currently in place are sort of dragging their feet or not moving quickly enough to, to, to adapt to that. Is, is that fair to say? Is, is that what's going on? I think that's fair to say in the uh, context of our building sector and how we heat our homes and businesses. There's a process going on. I think that the state has finally started taking steps 
to be more of a leader in this conversation and not to let the utilities, you know, press release planning um, substitute for what we actually need to do to figure out how to transform our energy system. And, and on the ISO New England side, um, yes, you know, I think that the, some of the rhetoric that we hear um, that, that includes now for the first time, I think in this past year, um, a reference to the need to, to really substantially increase our renewables. And, I, and we appreciate that that's now part of the message we're hearing from ISO New England, but it very quickly then shifts to, but we need even more gas than we already have. And so when gas is the source of the substantial price spikes that we saw this past winter and that we see during any number of periods of volatility, whether it's wars in other countries, whether it's economic uh, strife domestically or abroad, whether it's pandemics, one thing we can count on is that the price of gas in particular will fluctuate wildly and that we and our, our you know, citizens and businesses will pay that price and it's painful. So for gas to be the solution when in fact it's the problem on the economic side, let alone setting aside climate for the moment, uh, and, and needless to say, we're now not only do we have a moral obligation to address climate change, but in New England, 90% of the uh, electricity demand in this, in this region is in states that have climate mandates. So it's the law. And so we've got to move on it. We've got to reduce emissions by 45% by 2030. And to identify gas and the need to bring more gas into the region as the solution feels, you know, as Caitlin was saying with the utility plan, it's, it's just a justification for continuing to do business as usual, which is no plan at all. So I agree with you, but I, um, to a large extent, but I, I must admit there's another point of view, uh, and I sort of want to see where you guys stand on this. Uh, the two Democratic candidates for governor in Massachusetts are now on record saying they want to have 100% clean uh, renewable, a, a grid driven by 100% clean renewable energy by 2030. And that just seems like, you know, dreamland to me, because if all goes well, and it hasn't ever gone well so far, we'll have our first offshore window farm opening next year. We don't have a second one with final approval yet. The power line from Hydro-Quebec has been shot down at least temporarily in Maine. It seems like a lot of this effort, you know, um, Van, Van Wheelie was talking about, we need more renewables. We, we, we've got to really beef that up. And I know he's, you're, you're faulting him for not maybe setting up the markets that way, but are we realistic that we can get enough renewables to to make the, the grid 100% clean electricity by 2030? Is that, is that feasible? What do you think, Greg? So is it feasible? Um, yes, it's absolutely feasible. From a technical um, and technological and, and physics perspective, it is feasible. Um, I think the question becomes, how much will it cost? And so, you know, it, I think what you're hearing from 
politicians in Massachusetts is let's set ourselves up for success by putting in place some standards that will drive markets, that will drive institutions like ISO New England to put in place the appropriate mechanisms that are more likely than not to deliver success. And you know, obviously we have, um, you know, over time policies um, are gonna have to adjust depending upon what, what that success has looked like, what the cost of success looks like. You know, the, the larger policies within each of our states have us reducing our emissions by 80% by 2050 and achieving net zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. What that means is, you know, we've got to eliminate 80% of our emissions. It means there may be 20% of emissions that are either too expensive or not feasible to eliminate. And that we've got to find other means of uh, reducing and, and addressing those carbon emissions, whether it's through a form of natural sequestration in our, in our, by protecting forests and trees or other means. So, <clears throat> you know, those are, those are our solutions of the future. And in, in 2030 and 2040, we're going to have to be assessing where we are on the system. You know, how much clean electricity are we generating? How feasible is it to generate more? Um, so, it, it, you know, it, it, to answer your question, it, it is feasible, yes. When we talk about these goals um, that folks are looking to, you know, accelerate the transition to renewable clean energy, I think something that is contributing to pessimism is that over the last eight years, we've seen a remarkable amount of inertia in Massachusetts energy policy outside of setting um, the offshore wind procurements. So if you look at our the way that we incentivize solar energy in Massachusetts, the even in 2015, the Baker administration was trying to figure out a way to wean companies off of essentially any public money for solar, which is just absolutely opposite of what we need to be doing. If you're going to set, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, whoever the next governor is really digging in on this. But if you're going to set a goal of 100%, you know, clean energy, hopefully by a good definition by 2030, you need to then work backwards and see absolute what we need to throw at that goal, what state policies need to happen. Um, because what has gone on thus far is just not going to meet that mark. And I guess, I guess uh, you're right. Uh, that's a good point about solar. Um, but it also seems like we keep running into. Well, I guess this is this is an interesting conversation. Just because we keep running into this sort of what we have and the fear that that's going to be blown up. And we might have rolling blackouts or whatever in the interim, because maybe we don't have enough power at certain times of the day or certain times of the year when it's particularly cold or whatever. And so that prevents us from going full tilt. It sort of sounds like we need to, do we need to, I guess, I, I guess where I'm stumbling toward is, do we need to sort of blow up the systems we have or in, in terms of ISO New England and Maybe we need a democratic governor and, and a more focused attack on this or, or 
are it, are the existing policies systems in place? Are they enough to do this? Do we, do we need some new approach? I think what we're looking for is not not so much a blowing up, but a looking to the past for policies that have helped in the past. You know, since what was it, 1997 or so, electric restructuring, when we took away the sort of centralized energy planning at the state level and said, we're putting this into ISO New England, let's make a market that gets us the power we need at the lowest cost. That, you know, trusting the ISO New England market to supply us the power we need may have worked. It helped to kill a lot of old, really inefficient and expensive um, fossil fuel power plants, but it doesn't meet the needs of an intense and necessary um, energy transition to face the climate challenge. And so we need the states to step up and do more intensive um, and technical planning for when for what we need um, what we need to meet our needs both in this decade and then through to 2050. And we do hear that blackouts term um, often coming from the fossil fuel industry side, but it's always in the context of if you don't do exactly what the fossil fuel industry wants, you're gonna have blackouts. When there are a plethora of other tools that we can use <laughs> to shift demand and strengthen our grid to ensure that we, we can keep serving power while um, some amount of electric demand rises with electric vehicles and home heating electrification. Yeah, I, I would reinforce that, Bruce. There's, <clears throat> there is a pathway forward that is incremental and in big steps. And you know, we've never in this region suffered, thankfully, rolling blackouts. In this region, we procure, thanks to ISO New England, um, more than 30% of the electrical generation that we're going to need in any given winter when, when at least ISO New England is claiming there's a risk of these rolling blackouts. Um, and we put in place, uh, ISO New England has put in place a system of carrots and sticks that's designed to, you know, whack the companies that don't show up and produce energy when they're required to. And to reward those that do. So it's in part for, as a result of those kinds of market mechanisms that we haven't had rolling blackouts um, and the rhetoric around the risk of them just perpetuates um, you know, this fossil fuel future, which is, which is the status quo we've been talking about. You know, when you talk about blowing up our systems, you know, I, I don't think, as Caitlin and I are both saying, we are advocating for blowing it up now. But I can tell you, if change doesn't happen soon, it's going to blow up because the states have laws that require them to act. And they're going to continue to procure clean energy, and they're going to do it outside of the market. And that's going to have really detrimental impacts on the ISO markets, as Gordon Van Welle identified in your conversation with him a couple of years ago, and as studies that ISO New England has sponsored yeah, as far back as six or eight years ago, identified them. We've known this for quite some time. It's time to act to, to, to avoid the blow up and to do it in a way that is methodical yet, yet speedy and that avoids putting our reliability and, and human safety and health at risk 
as well as our economy. So one last area I'd like to just focus on a little bit is, um, so the, uh, Caitlin, you put it well that the markets worked pretty well for an extended period of time in shifting us away from costly, inefficient, uh, many of them coal-fired power plants and toward gas-fired power plants. But they haven't done that great a job at shifting us toward more renewables. Um, now, I always thought it was interesting that Gordon Van Welle, the guy that you think of as sort of maybe the status quo in a way, has sort of said, well, let, we need a carbon tax. We need a carbon tax to sort of let the market dictate what's going to succeed and fail here. But it never, that idea just seems to fall flat as can be on the, on the ears of the states. Um, is it, is that a solution that might work is to, to, cause I'm trying to think about how you take a market that's set up one way and this, and jam something else into it, because frankly, you know, states are negotiating deals with offshore wind farms and paying them for their offshore wind farms. And now they want to get into the markets and, and get more money for, for that deal. It seems a little unfair to me, but if you if you said that we value this power more and we're going to pay more for it in some fashion, then that sends a market signal that might work. Is that something that is just not acceptable politically, or is that the sort of incremental speed up change that's needed? It's a good question. The so so carbon pricing has been ISO New England's mechanism of choice. And what that would involve is essentially um, increasing the cost of the electricity produced by fossil fuel units so that um, it slowly worked those units out of the markets. That is, they'd be bidding in at prices to these auctions that wouldn't clear. Um, the, the challenge is, and some of the resistance that we've heard from the states, is that um, the ISO New England markets are federally regulated and the revenues that would come into ISO New England as a result of a carbon price or, or tax in those markets um, might have some federal strings attached to them and it might have the federal government influencing some of the state policies that the states would prefer to have autonomy on. And so that, that has been the difficult um, push and pull on this issue over the years. There is currently pending a proposal around a, a hybrid mechanism in the markets that might have a carbon pricing component um, in addition to some other mechanisms that might mitigate some of those concerns. It remains to be seen whether um, that idea catches on and whether it gains momentum. You know, one of, <clears throat> one of the additional concerns with any carbon pricing mechanism is that you don't have the political will to impose a high enough price to make a difference from a, from a carbon and markets perspective, but it's high enough to be felt in the marketplace and it hurts the public that's paying the costs of electricity or for other energy products. And so um, there are also populations for whom those costs are simply unaffordable and, and we need to mitigate and, and against those harms as well and to ensure that you know, it's a well-structured system. 
that's the challenge around carbon pricing. You know, it, it is, you know, from, from I think our perspective, there is a way of going about it that could work if there's the political will to do so. And if the right safeguards and, um, and mechanisms and structures are put in place um, to ensure that it, it has the climate benefit um, and that the, the costs don't substantially outweigh the benefits. Caitlin, I'm gonna give you the last word here. I just, it's sort of a, a question about utilities and, and how much uh, we rely on them for a lot of this um, planning and, and preparation. I've seen it in the procurement of offshore wind. They were pushed front and center to negotiate these contracts uh, that we've got in place and took a, took a, a a small percent of the deal for themselves as, as part of the process. And now I'm sort of seeing the legislature trying to move them out of that process, get them out of it. And their expertise is no longer needed so much. Um, 10 years from now, what, what role do you see utilities playing? Do you, do you see their role continuing to diminish, at least in a policy sense? Thanks, Bruce. That's a a great question that pulls together some of these threads. I think it it goes back to my point about the states needing to be leading in um, energy planning. The utilities were not pushed into any role with offshore wind in Massachusetts. They spent millions upon millions of dollars lobbying to get themselves into that role. Um, there are many states that do uh, big clean energy procurements that don't give that, as you said, that sweetener, that remuneration to utility shareholders. The utilities serve, they have monopolies of service territory because on the basis of serving the public interest, like they're, they're not just businesses. They work for us and we regulate them through our government. And so I think the role of utilities needs to be properly calibrated to um, the extent to which they can help our clean energy transition. And um, we need to make sure that our state policymakers feel empowered to pull on those strings a little bit more and regulate the utilities so that they're serving our interests rather than just their shareholders. Well, with that, Caitlin Peelstone and Greg Cunningham, I wanted to thank you for joining me today. And uh, to our listeners, We'll see you again next week. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Bruce. Thanks.